Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Kathy Charles, a screenwriter and author. She wrote The Reimagining of Castle Freak, which is now playing on Shudder, and is a, co- and is a co-writer of director Travis Stevens' upcoming film, Jacob's Wife. Welcome to the show, Kathy! Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So exciting to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> and we, we have so many questions about Castle Freak. But before we do that, we always like to start with, what? how did you get introduced to horror? Well, um, when I was a kid, I was really into horror films. And for a very long time, I felt like I was just one of those kids who loved horror films and loved monster movies. And there wasn't really any deeper explanation behind it. But then mm-hmm. as I started to uh, become an adult, I started to think, well, perhaps it had something to do with the fact that my grandfather was brutally murdered when I was a toddler. What? And I say that <laughs> half jokingly, but it kind of started to make sense for me. Uh, when I was around four years old, my mother's father uh, was murdered uh, quite uh, brutally. Um, and when I was a, a kid, I, I have some very strong memories of that time period. I didn't exactly understand what was going on exactly, but... There were two particular uh, incidents that stood out. One was I remember seeing my mother getting ready to go out somewhere and she was dressed beautifully and she was doing her makeup. And I would have been around five or six years old at the time. And I said to her, you know, mom, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to court. Do you know what court is? And I said, no. And she said, well, it's a place where we, we try to figure out what happened, uh, to somebody and I'm going to court to help them, uh, try to figure out, uh, who killed your grandfather. Whoa, and I said, shit. oh. 
okay. And then I went off and probably played with my Shira Princess of Power and didn't think anything else of it. Good. Uh, and then I think it might have been about a year later, I was rummaging through the drawers in my house because I was quite curious kid into everything. And I opened one of the drawers and I found newspaper clippings of uh about my grandfather's murder so i saw a photograph of him i saw the headlines i you know i i could make out most of the article and you know my my mother really shielded us from the truly horrific nature of what had occurred she was estranged from her father he was a very abusive man so when he died he wasn't really in our life but um you know, it's just, it's, it's something that I believe when I look back that was quite formative. And I believe that it imprinted on me at a very young age, this idea that very bad things can happen to you in life. And it was actually my, my first novel that I wrote, uh, John Belushi is Dead, which is about teenagers living in LA who are obsessed with dead celebrities. A lot of that novel was about coming to terms with my uh, grandfather's death. And one of the, the main character is, is based largely on him. So I think that really contributed to my fascination with darkness and, and darkness from a young age. Uh, I also, there were some pretty formative experiences in terms of my viewing that really imprinted on me. One was, I remember being a young child and sitting uh, in front of the TV in my room and an episode of The Twilight Zone was on. And it was the mm. Hitchhiker episode. Oh, yeah. I was too young to know what the Twilight Zone was. I was too young to know exactly what the episode was about. But I definitely understood the vibe of the episode and the eeriness and the darkness and the uh, the finality of what happened to the, the main protagonist in that episode. And I knew that the hitchhiker getting into her car and saying, I believe you're going my way was not a good thing for her so that really <laughs> stayed with me and the, the the pervading eeriness of that really stayed with me and it wasn't until i was much older that i was able to you know ask people hey did you ever see this thing on tv with this hitchhiker and it was really terrifying and they're like yeah it's the twilight and one of the greatest episodes ever written <laughs> so that had a big impact on me as well and then from then on you know i just i, I just started to kind of chase that sort of experience you know my mother actually didn't like me watching horror films so i would have to go to friends houses to watch mm. them and i remember going to a friend's house when i was around eight years old and watching an american werewolf in london oh, wow. and being completely captivated by it and I can't say I was ever really scared by any of these films that I watched when I was younger. It wasn't so much the fear that was the exhilarating part of these viewing experiences for me. It was the intensity of the experience. Because when you watch a horror film, it, it, it provokes a very uh, intense feeling. You know, it's... Uh, it, it's very moving, it's very tragic, it's very romantic. And those are the sorts of horror films that I really gravitate towards, the ones that are these great, grand, sad tragedies mm. that, you know, sweep you up in their story. And The American Werewolf in London is definitely one like that. Another one is Carrie, which mm. is another one oh, of my yeah. favorite films. So, so I've good. definitely always been attracted to the the tragic side 
of of horror and i think that reflects in in my work and i think it definitely reflects in in the remake of castle freak as the original castle freak is a very sad tragic moving romantic story and you know i've tried to to capture some of that in the in the in the remake so um so you watched a lot of horror movies growing up, but what was your first horror movie? Do you remember? Well, I'm pretty sure the Twilight Zone episode was my first okay. eeriness. In terms of horror, I think I remember sneaking out and watching Gremlins, which isn't really oh, a yeah. horror film. But if you watch it now, it's actually pretty nasty. It is. It's mean-spirited, but it, like in the best way. Right. Um so so that was one. I remember at a slumber party seeing a very strange film called American Gothic about a family uh, who live in the mountains and some people come and visit them and the mountain people proceed to murder all of them. One of them is murdered with a, a set of knitting needles, which uh, which really imprinted on me as well. Uh, so they, they were pretty – they were the – the big ones that I watched, but like I said, American Wealth in London and and Carrie made a, a very big impression on me when I was a kid. I, I can imagine. Um, I I don't think I saw either of those movies until I was a little bit older. But I, especially like at Carrie, I, I can't imagine being a, a young kid and seeing that movie. Honestly, it's There's also, so much going I watched on. Carrie in it. when I was younger and had absolutely no idea what was going on, and I rewatched it this oh. year, and I was like. Oh, this is awful. Like, I knew it was sad and, like, I got the broad strokes, but I don't think my young mind processed just how traumatic that movie is. <laughs> right. When you're, it's funny when you're a kid and you watch these things, you take them on a certain level. And then uh, when you get older and you revisit them, the, the true horror of what you're seeing yeah. really strikes you. But I think that's true of, of anything you watch as a kid. I remember watching, I mean, I, I was a kid in the 80s and the comedies that I used to watch, I watch them now and I'm like, my goodness, I was taking in so many yep. crazy messages about <laughs> sex and gender yep. and and relationships and you know, my goodness and I couldn't even I couldn't even contextualize those when I was a kid and you know you contextualize them now and you think wow um no wonder my you know <laughs> the formation of my personality is a little off <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> i do i i was a kid of the 80s too and and i remember you know go, going back and revisiting some of the movies that like were favorites as a kid i'm like good god this explains a lot <laughs> right i mean my sister and i our favorite films were you know revenge of the nerds and things like oh, that yeah. bachelor party in bachelor party, bachelor party a donkey there's a donkey show and the donkey ods on drugs it's nuts <laughs> But it, hey, it was the eighties, and that's what we all uh, used to watch, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there was actually there was one film that quite frightened my sister and I, which is really quite hilarious because it was a comedy. The opening scene of Young Frankenstein. So we oh, loved Young Frankenstein, okay. but the film opens with a uh, slow track in towards a coffin that is ripped open, and there's a corpse inside clutching a box. And my sister and I used to hide behind the sofa every time that scene played because we were terrified to see the corpse uh inside the coffin which is hilarious because i mean it's it's a really funny film but for some reason that was particularly frightening to us but also (laughs) my my younger sister i used to torment her because she didn't like horror films at all and she still doesn't she can't watch them and i would do things like i would play uh 
like Vincent Price's outro to Michael Jackson's Thriller and I would pipe it into our bedroom and she'd be yelling at me going don't play that song so uh yeah I was a little I was a little mean to her at times but uh but no the 80s were a good time (laughs) (laughs) so you know as as an adult (laughs) man um as an adult now looking uh at, at horror movies what do you think what what draws you to them now? Is it the same kind of childhood fear or is it, uh, you know, larger thematic things? Well, I think in terms of my own work, what horror allows me to do is really unpack human relationships in mm-hmm. a very honest way. I mean, you can hide a lot of things in a genre film and talk about a lot of issues that may not be uh, as palatable in in a dramatic film and you can kind mm. of get to a, a deeper, darker level when talking about what drives people and how people behave with each other and how people behave in relationships. And, you know, something I'm very interested in is, you know, the, the darker parts of ourselves and how far we can take that and also how much can you forgive people for the flaws that they have. And that's something that, you know, I, I I find really interesting and horror allows me to really dive into that in a way that, you know, that if I was writing drama, I couldn't. I mean, you know, what do mm-hmm. people talk about now? Do they talk about Kramer versus Kramer or do they talk about The Shining, you know? Right. Mm. Uh, so I really – I actually think that within the genre, these uh, – the sorts of uh, – depictions of relationships they i think that they endure more than in dramas because dramas are so literal and we're constantly changing and culture is constantly changing but the tropes of a horror film you know a lot of them you know are are enduring and they carry on and they don't change as much and once again, you can also just hide things in there. You can look at a horror film on, on many different levels. But yeah. I mean, in terms of the horror films that I like, I really like ones. I love them to be romantic, moody, mm. dramatic sad tragic i want to feel like i've been punched in the gut i want to walk around for days afterwards feeling lost in the the darkness and the despair of what i've just seen you know it's like it's it's like chasing the darkness like when i saw american wealth in london for days i thought about that ending and it was terribly sad and depressing but there was an exhilaration to it as well that kind of darkness is very it's romantic and it's seductive so uh, that's definitely the sort of film I gravitate towards I like something that's very narrative driven that's about people I'm less inclined to like something that is very set piece driven even though I I, you know I I enjoy films like Hostel you know as much as the next person Mm -hmm. and I like slasher films and um, there's nothing wrong with them but I really like something that kind of gets to the dark heart of who we are and what we do to each other so what was the last movie that punched you in the gut like that hmm well well one of my favorite films is Mulholland Drive and I feel Mm, like Mulholland Drive is this beautiful hybrid of you know Hollywood story horror movie romance uh art house film it kind of it brings all of those elements together it to an ending that is utterly devastating and if i'm in the mood to be really devastated i'll pop mulholland drive on and (laughs) and have a good time with that um another film that i saw another more recent film 
was a, a British horror film called uh, Dark Song. <gasps> oh my god, oh. I love Dark Song. Yeah, it didn't it's, it didn't get as oh, much attention as it no. really should have. It was so incredibly moving and mind-blowing and touching and beautifully made and that that made a really big impact on me as well. Um if if people haven't seen a Dark Song, seek it out. It's it's just such a wonderful sad film it's so good and it's a little it's like it's a slower paced film but in a really tense way and it's just i wish like like you said i wish more people have seen it because it's really beautiful i have seen midnight put it out i think um so if you guys need another movie to watch i really recommend that one last question before we get to the creative stuff what do you have a favorite horror movie as an adult now it's it's always a toss-up between Carrie and an American Wealth in London. <laughs> I mean, yeah. those, those are the yeah. two. Those are yeah. the two really big ones for me. Uh, if you looked at my horror top ten, it's filled with Stephen King, which is not wow. unusual. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually I broke into the industry writing a Stephen King biopic, so yes. I'm very, uh, very obsessed cool. with Stephen King, as we all are. Um, but you know, in my top ten, you you would have Pet Cemetery and Christine and The Shining and um, but Carrie. I think Carrie is my – I think that could be my favorite horror film by default because Brian De Palma is my favorite film director of all time. Oh, okay. Oh, so then by cool. default, that should really be my favorite horror film. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it vacillates between that and An American World for London. Um, yeah, they're, they're both – I mean, yeah, they're they're incredible films. Incredible. Sweet. Yeah. Transitioning to Castle Freak, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this new reimagining of it? I can't say too much because it's it's packed with surprises <laughs> that I don't okay. want to ruin. It, right. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of surprises in there, so I don't really want to ruin any of that. All I'll say is that one of the things I was interested in doing was kind of expanding the universe of the film and bringing in a lot more of the Lovecraftian legends to the story. Mm. And that was something I had done on the Stephen King biopic that I wrote that will most likely never be made. Um, I basically put Stephen King within the universe of Stephen King's work. So oh, it wow. was half conventional biopic and half genre film where Stephen King was interacting uh, with characters from his stories and it was like I'd placed him within within one of his own stories because I thought that was really interesting. How would Stephen King fare in a Stephen King story? Huh. So Castle Freak was a li- is a little similar. I, I just wanted to bring in a, a large amount of Lovecraftian lore from a multitude of different Lovecraft stories. So you know, obviously the source material is, it's loosely based on a story called The Outsider, but there's mm-hmm. also a, a lot of other Lovecraftian lore in there as well. And I won't bring up specific stories because I don't want to spoil anything for anyone watching it. But, uh, that would, that was something I was really, uh, excited to do because obviously, you know, the original, uh, Castle Freak, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It's directed by Stuart Gordon and written by Dennis Paoli, one of the greatest genre screenwriters of all time. So, you know, I couldn't possibly seek to, to achieve what they achieved with the original Castle Freak. Uh, so I thought, well, what is, it? how do I make the story a little bigger, um, a little brasher and, uh, and just bring in some more of these elements? And uh, hopefully uh, it's something that people really dig. So the other thing is, is that since we do have you on and I know it's not coming out for another like, I think like maybe April is what I'm I'm hearing. But I got to ask about your co-writer on St- Travis Stevens's upcoming film, Jacob's 
wife. Is there anything you can kind of share about that movie? No. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just lead up for nothing. Uh, all I can I say, it. all I can say is, it's really great. Uh, it's got Barbara <laughs> Crampton and Larry Fessenden in it. Oh I my know. god! Yeah, like how um, could you go wrong? <laughs> exactly, and uh, it's a. Uh, it's just it's it's really it's really fantastic and I was really so grateful to Barbara brought me on to that and it's just been a really great experience and people are going to love it and you know I still remember sitting at a Cine family in Los Angeles seeing Habit for the first time and mm. being so taken in with Larry and his performance and then mm-hmm getting to meet Larry and be on set and see him working with Barbara and, you know, and working with Barbara, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really can't give anything away, but I think people are really going to dig that film. Hell yeah. I can't wait. Like I was really excited. Like when I saw Barbara and, and Larry, cause I, I, Larry is incredibly watchable. He is, even if he's in like a, a for a very short amount of time, like I'm, I'm thinking about your next, another movie. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. His performance in that is, is, is so captivating just in that brief moment that he's there. Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I was very excited when he was cast. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Cool. And we love Travis. We love Travis. And Travis too, is, so. is fantastic. I mean, girl on the third floor. Are you kidding oh, so me? Good. So good. Yeah. So goopy and gross and amazing. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry I can't say any more, but such is the nature of things. I would love to tell you everything, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked about your creative endeavors, but Kathy, what movie did you bring with you today for us to talk about? Uh, so I bought, basket case what is the secret Dwayne is hiding in the basket what's in the basket easter eggs what's in the basket clothes what's in the basket nothing What's in the basket? My brother. What's in the basket? Open it, if you dare. Basket case. Talking about exploitation. (laughs) (laughs) The granddaddy of exploitation flicks. Seriously. So in basket case... Uh, a young man with a basket, there we go, <laughs> carrying his deformed, previously conjoined twin, arrives in New York City to seek vengeance on the doctors who separated them against their will. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's <in a> nutshell. <laughs> so, Kathy, like, paint us a picture here. When did you first see this movie? What scared you the most about it? Tell us everything. So, I saw this when I was 11 years old. Okay. I had a, a friend in... Uh, primary school, as you call it in Australia. Uh, her name was Colby. Uh, Colby may be listening to this, so shout out Colby. Uh, hi Colby. Hi Colby. <laughs> hi Colby. So Colby and I were both very avid writers, uh, in, in grade five. So oh, we cool. liked to write stories together and we were also obsessed with horror films and we would go to the video store and we would 
try to pick out the the videos with the most lurid covers mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you know and like i said like it's not just guys who go to the video store and want to see horrific horrible films girls want to do it as well colby it's- and i oh, yeah. we were obsessed with with really disgusting stuff and you know, the, the horror movie section at the video store, you know, the covers were so captivating and there were, there were two films in particular that really captivated me with the covers. One was Carrie because the, the cover in Australia was just Carrie looking straight out of the cover with blood all over her face and it was terrifying. I said, I have to know what's oh, going yeah. on with this girl. But basket case also, you see these, these eyes coming out of a slit in a wicker basket and this mm. bloody dripping font of basket basket case and as soon as i we must have gotten someone to hire it for us because it was rated r so i don't know how we got this tape from the video (laughs) store but we did and we watched it in colby's living room at around i think it was 1 a.m in the morning i know it was the middle of the night and we put this tape in and it was and it was basket case (laughs) And it, you know, and it was probably the first exploitation film I ever saw. It looked completely different to anything else I had seen. The graininess and the gritty aesthetic of it, it almost looked like some forbidden object that I had found that I wasn't meant to be watching. And it completely took me in and at, at first you know it was it was gory and it was lurid and it was this strange story and this strange creature but then once again like when i watched an american wealth in london this incredibly beautiful tragic tale unfolded until at the end i was so devastated for the uh you know the the uh the ending of the story and the fate of these two brothers that I was just completely moved by it. My brain is like firing in a million, million different directions <laughs> by what you're talking about, but I kind of wanted to go back to the graininess of it um, initially, because that's something that like, you know, the first time I remember seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like, it's that sort of like, I don't know if I should be watching this because it was so grainy and it was so like low, like low budget, but like not low budget, but it was like filmed in such a way that it felt almost that it could be like something forbidden that I shouldn't be watching. And I got that same way watching this uh, basket case uh, this week to, for the podcast. And that's something that I, I feel like um, we're kind of missing out now with, with all the 4k and the, you know, everything is looking pristine and beautiful is that sort of like forbiddenness that something like basket case could give. Oh, you. absolutely. Every time, time i see a new horror film i'm like just put some grain in it just rub <laughs> up the grain rub some dirt yeah, in it. You just just rub something on it i mean you can you can do that there are so many filters why aren't we using the grainy right. exploitation filter and i mean some filmmakers do i mean you know uh look at uh the the, the tarantino robert rodriguez uh Oh yeah, the, the, the grindhouse, the grindhouse movies. movies. You know, yeah. uh, we can do it, and I'd love to see more of that because it really does. It it's kind of you get a visceral response to that sort of graininess because it does feel it feels underground. It feels dirty. You can see the dirtiness, and it kind of sets you up. It it actually aids the story because it's a dirty, dark, nasty story, and the the aesthetic of it is also communicating that as well so it's actually that the cheaper i mean it was made very cheaply i believe it was $35,000 uh but mm. the cheapness actually 
adds to the effect of the film. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Especially because something I was thinking about and that Terry was talking to me about was how seedy New York used to be portrayed and how seedy it is in this movie and how that grittiness and that graininess really helps sell that sleazy kind of gross part of New York that's so common in those movies, like in the movies from the 80s. Right. You kind of want to take a shower afterwards. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Also, the performances were almost like porn performances, like the acting. I just have to say, it was not... <laughs> it's very <laughs> awkward, but it made me laugh. The, the acting is... Uh, it's, you know, there's this, you know, the performances are very interesting. I actually, I mean, one of my favorite directors is Larry Cohen and the performances in his films are so over the top. And, you know, I also (laughs) love John Cassavetti's films and they're also over the top. So I, on some level, I appreciate when a performance is not, is not great if it's a, a little wonky, as long as the performer is really putting a lot into it. Um, I can still enjoy it, but it's interesting what you say about New York. The uh, Museum of Modern Art actually did a restoration of Basket Case because I believe they also saw the uh, the benefit of having this time capsule of that period yeah. in New York. And one thing to come out of this pandemic is, you know, we're actually seeing a lot of our urban centers are starting to to decline. There's, you know, a rise in violence and there's, you know, a rise in urban alienation and a lot of these things we were grappling with in the 80s. So I'm interested to see what comes out of this period in history in terms of grindhouse exploitation cinema and whether what we've gone through now is going to result in films again like basket case potentially taking it back so you, you, it was like probably one in the morning you're 11 years old you're watching this what about this movie like scared you i i wasn't scared i was just really oh. moved by uh i was just really moved by belial and his brother i think it's because <laughs> when you're a kid your frame of reference for films that have a strange little creature in them are that you're meant to feel sympathy for the mm, creature. Your frame of yeah. reference is E.T. and Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, that's a good point. And there's actually a lot of parallels between Basket Case and E.T., and I believe that they were released the same year. Uh, E.T. is kind of, uh, sorry, Basket Case is kind of like the, the, the nasty exploitation version of E.T., and there's, there's a lot of similarities. There's, you know, there are these scenes in the bathroom where, uh, you know, where Belial's talking, well, Dwayne's talking to Belial and Belial's in the toilet. And it kind of mirrors the scene where Elliot and E.T. are in the bathroom and, and E.T.'s sick on the floor. And there's these oh, weird yeah. parallels oh. there. And I think because I was watching Basket Case at a young age, that was my frame of reference. Oh, this poor little guy in a basket. Oh, they separated these brothers. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, they should really, yeah, go after these people and kill them. I understand <laughs> this. But watching it as an adult, you're like, oh, that Bilal, he's a little fucked up critter and he shouldn't be killing people <laughs> like that, you know? So, uh, I, once again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't frightened by it. I was just, I was captivated. Yeah. Captivated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, um, I, I remember being a kid and you were talking about sort of like looking for the the lurid covers. Well, I remember I, I'm always like drawn to VHS covers and I think it's a lost art. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast multiple times where it's like, I, I think people miss out on that sort of like joy of walking into um, a blockbuster or whatever the case may be and grabbing like a bunch of like horror movies and you don't know what you're going to get. Because now you can just like change the channel, but like I just like a quick aside on and designs for like 
wide release Blu-rays are garbage. They have like the big Rotten Tomatoes oh, thing on there. And like a lot of the boutique Blu-rays put out great covers, but boy oh boy, I went to Target the other day and the covers not great. <laughs> Cover not art good. is not a, like is not a primary focus for the marketing. Yeah, I d- I don't think that the same level of attention is paid to design when marketing a film anymore. I think there's a lot of attention paid to the elements of the film like the the actors who you attach and and the directors and mm-hmm. and I think that that's where they they expect people to to decide whether they're going to watch a film or not. Um but but I mean also, I mean, the, the films that were being made back in the 80s, I mean, they were just, uh, I mean, they lent themselves to better cover up because they were weirder, you know? They were really weird. <laughs> yes, they were. True, like very specific. <laughs> right. And I mean, also at the moment, you, you go on a streaming service and everyone's using the same colors for their artwork. They're all using blues oh, yeah. and purples and it all kind of looks the same. So it's hard to, to discern to what you're watching. But you're right. When, I mean, when you'd walk into a video store, I mean, just the fact that you're picking up physical media, it, it really lent itself to that idea that this was a, a, an object that you were bringing into right. your home. You were choosing to bring it into your home. And, you know, like I remember reading books that scared me so much that I would put them under my bed because I was terrified of them. <laughs> I'm like, yep. I'm putting that book, you know, I put Pet Cemetery under my bed until the next day because <laughs> I was too scared to look at it. And the video covers were kind of the same. So it's it's definitely a lost art form, I think. You know, it's 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 funny. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but this just reminded me, My I had a book and it was called scary stories to tell in the dark mm-hmm. and um it had like it had a freaky cover back in 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 the the original edition of it i think the new one has been really neutered but um i i had this book and my brother who was who was eight years younger than me like it was one of my favorites growing up and like i so i held on to because i had nostalgic value and he was absolutely terrified of the cover and he made he told my parents that i needed to get rid of it and so my parents were like you just need to hide it so I hid it. We told my brother that we threw it out. And then one day he found it. And he, for the longest time, thought that it had like magically <gasps> come back into the house. And he was terrified oh, no. of it because he's like, it is haunted. So I can understand that kind of hiding it <laughs> under under your bed because my brother was terrified That's hilarious. Of that book. That's like the uh, the monkey with the symbols in that Stephen King story. Oh, yeah. That they came- monkey Shines? Uh, no, it's, a, it's it not that, called Monkey or- Shines. It's called, it's called something else, but there was a toy monkey with symbols and and yeah. it was evil and he threw it away and he threw it in a river and it just kept coming back. So <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Yeah, that was my brother for you. <laughs> but like I, I used to always get this movie confused with um, It's Alive because oh, yeah. by the time I saw it, it the, there was the third one was was out. The third By the time I went through the, the horror movie section, the third one was out and it ha- actually has a bassinet in it with like multiple of Belial's, I guess, in, in the in the bassinet. There's but three the of cover these? Is so- Oh yeah. Yeah, there's three of them. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I think putting the Belials in the bassinet, I think they were actually trying to bite I mean, I could be wrong, but I think they were trying to bite from the It's Alive marketing campaign because the It's Alive films were very, very profitable for Warner Brothers. So that makes a lot oh, of yeah. sense. But yeah, so I always I always conflated the two in my mind, and I didn't actually see Basket Case until uh twenty eighteen because it was one of the movies on the OG last drive in that went for twenty four hours. Mm. And I still don't remember much about it from watching that. I don't know what time it was airing, but like I must have been really out of it because watching it this week felt like I was watching it for the first time. Um, but Mary Beth, 
This was your first watch too, wasn't sure it? Sure was. What were your thoughts? Uh, my first note is what in the fresh hell? Um, so I, I think I get this and street trash mixed up. I don't. Oh. <laughs> and again, it's cover art. It's all down to the cover art. I did not expect it to be as kind of horrifying as it was. Like I knew it was going to be kind of silly, but Belial was way scarier than I expected. I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't that. Like. The thing that terrified me the most was his the sound design mm. and the the noises he makes, like his breathing. <laughs> and his screeching. <laughs> it's also harrowing. Like especially when you look like, at like the POV of him like breathing really heavily as he's stalking a woman or doing anything else, and it just the sonic landscape of the film really got under my skin. Um, it definitely freaked me out. I'll just put it that way. I was like, right. this is gross. Like, it feels – I mean, my skin crawl. It felt gross, like we kept saying about, like, the way it's filmed. It just felt like there was a creepy guy breathing in my ear. And it was nasty. Yeah, the sound design <laughs> is, is is fantastic. And you have that great scene where Belial is having a temper tantrum and he's trashing the yeah. hotel room and everyone's outside the door saying, is there some wild animal in there? And you can feel, I mean, I don't know who voiced Belial, but you can feel his utter animal primal yes. rage. He's, he, he's filled yeah. with rage against the world and – you know, sound design is another thing that I don't think a lot of filmmakers spend enough time on these days because, I mean, sound is such a huge part of what makes a film really terrifying. And yeah, you're right. The sound design of, of Basket Case, it, it feels very, it feels very real. It feels very visceral. And Bilal himself, he makes some very, very frightening noises. Well, and I feel like it, it takes even further because Belial obviously looks pretty terrifying he's got the creepy teeth he's a massive flesh His teeth yeah but it relies on more than just his aesthetics which i like a lot like it, they, it's like oh it's not just like the way he looks that's freaky it's every everything about him so i kind of appreciate making it more than just like a scary looking monster but like a fully realized creature that's even sounds strange Right. And it's actually, it's a really incredibly structured film because the build up to the reveal of Belial, it's very metered. You know, you, you hear, uh, you hear him breathing. You see his POV. You see him, you see his brother Dwayne speaking to him telepathically. Right. And so there's all this great build up to when you finally do see Bilal when he bursts out of the basket and the reveal <laughs> is is worth the wait. Like they nailed the reveal yeah. because you keep thinking what is this thing and how awful could it possibly be? And you're like, "Oh, it's it's pretty bad." It's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I think one thing that really threw me off in this movie though was these moments of stop animation with him, which were cool <laughs> at first, but I was confused. Like there was that, there's a, that one moment, especially where he, he, there's stop motion. Then he puts his hands, I think, into Dwayne's backpack and it changes from stop motion very quickly to obviously someone wearing gloves and going through right. the bag. It's very interesting. Like the way 
they chose to animate those sequences. Like, it was just very jarring and strange. Yeah, I, I watched an interview with Frank Henenlotter. I actually love the stop motion sequences. I think they're so charming and so much a part of the, the, the a charm of the kind of DIY aesthetic of the film. And apparently the director, he did a lot of the stop motion and he just oh. didn't have the patience for it. So, you know, stop motion is meant to be very accurate you're meant to move a model very very slightly and i think by the end of it he was just like oh just move it move it move it so you get this really (laughs) jittery kind of belial okay that makes sense yeah so it is very jarring when they cut straight from the stop motion to the hands but once again i just love the whole diy aesthetic of it and it actually led to some of the most interesting parts of the films like for example uh when they realized how difficult the stop motion was and how time consuming it was there was a scene where Belial was meant to be running through the streets of New York City. And when they realized, well, this is going to be very difficult to do and the stop motion is very difficult to do as well, that resulted in the character of Dwayne dreaming and he's the one running through the streets of New York City because the two of them are telepathically linked. And that actually worked really well Mm, on a narrative level. uh, But also, uh, you know, spared us having to see a stop-motion Bilal going down <laughs> a New York City street, which I would have loved to have seen. But I was going to say, I think that would have been awesome, but I get it. <laughs> you know, one of the things that um, I do like about um, Hen and Lauder, and, and it kind of talks about, like, I was looking at some of the behind-the-scenes type stuff, and he kind of reminds me of, like, Larry Cohen, where he just sort of, like, we're doing things on the fly, we're doing things on the sly, and we're going to try to, like, get this get these shots in without with spending as little money as you possibly can. There was um, one one particular like anecdote I saw was about the scene in front of the Statue of Liberty where they're like, we're not going to get a permit. We're going to film because by the time we're done and they want to throw us out, we'll have gotten all the footage we need. <laughs> and I just, I love that kind of DIY, like you mentioned, Kathy, kind of feel to this film. Right. And you feel that energy when you watch these films, when you watch a Larry Cohen film, you feel the anxiety of we're trying yeah. to get this shot and you feel <laughs> the tension and i think it informs the performances as well but also if you spend a year making a film as they did with basket case where they were shooting on weekends you know that that's something that people are really putting a huge amount of effort and care into because otherwise why would you keep doing it? you would just give up so i think that's a, a testament as well to to how this film kind of transcends its its exploitation context um, and what kind of catapults it into another realm of, of being a very special movie. Also, I, I, I actually really like the characters that are in this movie. Um, in particular, my notes were all about Casey, played by mm. Beverly Bonner. Mm-hmm. I I love her in this, and I love her room full of smiley faces. Oh, I know. She's got smiley faces everywhere. Everywhere. Um, she actually, I believe she passed away only last week, which is very sad. Oh, oh no. And, that's awful. Yeah, she was in... Every single one of Frank Henlotter's films in some sort of capacity. She had a cameo in all of them. And she probably gives one of the best performances in Basket Case. I mean, Kevin Van Hentenrick as Dwayne is so fantastic. But she's she's equally good, I think. They're so good together, especially in the bar. There's something else I've been dying to ask you. What's in the basket? My brother. Your brother! (laughs) (laughs) What is he, a midget? (laughs) No, we're twins. Oh, I love the bar scene. The bar scene is so good. Right. 
Right. And as a writer, I really appreciate that scene because it's a really natural way to dump a huge amount of exposition on yep. someone in a way that feels organic. Yes, if you were very drunk, you would give all that information away. <laughs> right. You'd yes. start going, oh, yeah, my brother is in the basket and we kill people. And, you know, it it, it really worked. I, I think Hannon-Lott is such a great writer and uh, and I really appreciate the way he he develops characters. And he's kind of – he really does a number on you in this film because – you know, you, you're really with Belial and Dwayne while they're on their revenge mission because you understand it and you sympathize with it to some extent. But what he does after the revenge mission is over and they've killed the people that they want to kill, then it becomes a completely different story where Belial turns on his brother and then covets what his brother has. And it, you know, then your sympathies are completely thrown into question and then it really gets pushed because Belial really engages in some horrific behavior but then he has to bring yeah. it back again at the end to a point where you still feel something for Belial when after he perishes well he perishes in this film he comes back in the second one but uh <laughs> but when when Dwayne and Belial perish you know it's played for a huge amount of sympathy so that's a very that's that's a very delicate character balance that i think that they succeeded with and i i think that there is a lot of delicate balances in this movie between the horror and the comedy i'm thinking like of dr cutter who is one of my my other favorite characters in this movie because i love her as a villain and i love that she is introduced having dinner with a younger man and she's like mm, that was delicious so are you. Come on, have some more. No, really. I, I've had enough. Nonsense. We're just beginning. Listen, if I have any more, I'm liable, <laughs> liable to... That's all right. I like you drunk. You're cute when you slobber. Like, the power dynamics in this scene are so, like, reverse of what a lot of movies were in, in the time. And you see this very powerful woman who is basically like, yeah, this is my plaything for the night. And she doesn't even call him by his name. She's like, sorry about that, Cuddles. Like, she is just – she is sexualizing this young man, and I just – I love it. I thought she was Sigourney <laughs> Weaver for, like, two seconds. <laughs> Um, I, I love all of the, all of the female characters in this film are great. They're all very assertive, bordering on aggression. None of them are wilting violets. You know, the, the, yeah. the grandmother who looks after Belial and Dwayne, she's very headstrong in what she's doing. Dr. Cutter is very headstrong. Susan is very headstrong. She wants to go out with Dwayne and nothing's going to stop her. And I, I, I appreciate these, these depictions of women in this film. They're, they're very strong. Uh, just as, in fact, you know, Dwayne's the one who is kind of... He's kind of milk toast in some ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He has a cute face, though. <laughs> kind of looks like a, he kind of looks like a poodle, but... I mean, he, okay. does, he does have poodle hair, but... But you're right. I didn't think about that, so like, specifically, Kathy, about how all of the female characters in this film are actually written to be strong, like, like aggressive women that you don't usually see in movies like this. Like, right. they're all intense and, like, very much themselves and aren't ashamed of it. And I love that. And I think I think that is a really good part of the film is that it's like, oh, we're not going to make like typical female figures. We're going to make a lot of like more empowered than Dwayne figures. And Dr. Cutter, it's just so good. But also her death is very her. upsetting. That got me. The ver That her death got me bad. I yeah, don't know it's why. pretty nasty. It's, it's so prolonged. It's long, and she's like her screaming. Ah! 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 
is really good and also very upsetting and like, torturous. And it just keeps going and going with close-ups on her bloody face. And it's just... The hold on her face with the scalpels yes! in it is... Oh, it's such a good gore moment, but it continues to such an uncomfortable de- degree. Yeah. Like, it just, like, lingers on Once her. again, on, on a writing level, I really appreciate what they did with her because they set her up to be so horrendous that you would go along with a death that was that horrendous. You know, they, they kind mm-hmm. of set her up as, well, we're going to kill her in a really, really intense way, but you're going to like it because she's such a... A horrible person. <laughs> so it was, it was set up, but I do, I do admit there's, there's a lot of screaming in this movie. It really is. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. Her death in particular. Yeah. I was laughing at the twin receptionists though that were oh, like, Oh my God. What is going on over there? And like, Are you were- okay? No. <laughs> she is not okay. Yeah. It's funny rewatching it. You do realize that there is a deliberate level of silliness to the film. But when you watch it as a kid, you watch everything very earnestly and very literally. Yeah. So you take yeah. everything very, very seriously. But it is on a lot of levels a very, Silly film, obviously. What's silly about a guy carrying his conjoined twin in a basket around New York City? There's nothing silly about about that concept. Speaking of which, the flashback moment. I really wanted to talk about that because, like, it I think is the emotional core of of the Mm. story with with this idea of, Mm -hmm. like, the father who, you know, is yelling at the doctors that it should be Dennis and my wife. And his comment about... Why didn't you kill it before it killed her? Which makes me wonder, is this, is this like, are the, is he talking about why didn't they have like a, an abortion because they knew it was going to kill her if it was born? Yeah, I think that's what's going like, on there. I think that the. Like, it's a throwaway line. Yeah, but that's what's great about the flashback. It comes right in the middle of the film. It's very lengthy for a flashback, but mm-hmm. it's a very economical way of giving us all of that information so yeah i think the obvious inference is that because the child was you know such a strange shape that when the mother gave birth to it it ended up killing her but the flashback also contains the most ridiculous kill of the entire movie oh my god uh, that's that's so (laughs) insane and then the cops go well we don't know what happened Uh, so so we're gonna go away now and you can go back to your lives when it's like well there's a contraption that has been set up that's insane (laughs) and a man has been sawed completely in half and the cops just like (laughs) we don't know so you know go back to your go back to your (laughs) lives we'll try to figure it out uh but yeah, that I mean that that uh, I mean I appreciate the metaphor of of the death, uh, the slicing in half of the yeah. father, but uh, yeah. yeah, that that seems pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I I was like, did they hide it? Like, did they? <laughs> I, I don't. I just had so many thoughts and feelings. Well, and that was right after he brings Belial out of the trash bag. <laughs> okay, that scene was so upsetting to me. So even like. Sad. He it's wasn't like, even dead. They didn't even check. He wasn't even dead. They just threw him yes, out of the trash. Out of the trash bag. But it actually kind of reminded me a little bit of of Batman Returns with with Penguin's origin oh, story. Yeah. Where it's like there's like this like you you never see him as a kid. He's like in that kind of chained box <laughs> instead of like a bassinet. And then the parents just like sort of dump him in the water mm-hmm. and like ah well that. That problem solved. But it, it reminds me that that movie. I I kind of wonder if this movie was sort of like a, an inspiration for for that scene because it, it felt very much like a 
a more gothic and more silly sort of beginning, but it it, it reminded me so much of yeah, this movie. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, in terms of those those scenes there's a lot of instances in this movie where there are things that aren't really explained and we're asked to just accept them at face value so for example Bilal's always jumping into other people's rooms and jumping out of windows and then somehow getting back into his own room so I can only surmise that he has (laughs) traveled around the edge of the hotel crawled around the ledges with his Belial arms and swung back into his own room. Or he has dropped to the floor and kind of slunk past everyone. But we never actually see any of those movements. We just see that Dwayne's room door closing and we're meant to just accept, oh, Belial's just found a way in. And I think it's it's really... ingenious filmmaking the way you know because as a writer you're always trying to make everything work like well well how could he possibly get back in the hotel room and it's obvious that Hannah Lott is going oh I'll just show the door closing people will figure it out you know (laughs) (laughs) I did love that I was like the logistics make no sense in my head but I don't care like they're so they dedicate themselves so much to that that you're like okay (laughs) like they don't care this isn't like some accidental issue this is like a oh no like we're just gonna just Go with it. Go with it. Right. It's fine. And I mean, Don't to, worry. That, to that point, we've gone with the fact that Belial is alive, that he must have his own internal organ system, that he must have a heart and a brain and all of these things. And he has miraculously has enough scar tissue from when he was removed from his brother that he can still walk around, well, swing around with his arms. So I guess how he gets back in a hotel room is a moot point, you know? I guess it's like, well, you you really need that explained. You're looking at a a meatball with arms, you know? He has quite the upper arm strength because he is able to lift Dwayne by his crotch oh, yeah. and also like hold on to the sign outside while also holding on to onto Dwayne at the very end. Like dude dude is dude is ripped. He is doing some like uh, Well, pull-ups, if arms are like, all you have, then I guess you have to be ripped. I guess you have to train. And you have to pull your <laughs> to pull around your meatball body. Like you just you need good arms. I loved when he came out of the toilet with like his creepy arm right. and he just pulled himself out of the toilet. There are some parts of this movie where I kind of feel bad for Belial. I don't did you did either of you guys ever feel the same about his character or his I don't know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, if you, yeah. I mean, it's that classic trope of the the outsider who is different from everyone else and just wants the sort of life that everyone else has. And I mean, that's a parallel it has with Castle Freak. You know, these 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 beings. I don't want to call them creatures. You know, these 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 beings that are different to everyone else, and they cover what we have, and they don't have the tools necessary to get what we have in a way that is that is positive. You know, they they're filled with mm-hmm. rage and and hatred against the world, and they're just going to take what they want because they feel so hard done by the world. And that's kind of a classic monster trope. But unfortunately, what always yeah, happens right. is that the monster always takes things uh much too far and you know i don't know if if we can talk about the scene in the film uh the the most controversial oh, scene yeah. um you know well yep. firstly how Bilal achieves what he's doing or what he's actually doing is uh, unusual i did not realize <laughs> what he was doing i was just like oh he's just rubbing himself in the blood <laughs> well that could very well be the case because i mean i was 
was like, am I? I was like, there's no, because I did not think there was any way. I did not think that there was any way that that could be happening. Well, it's quite possible that what he was doing. Why are you uh, booing me, Terry? I'm right. I'm, I'm laughing. I'm not booing. I'm know. laughing. You know, I think he was possibly just copying what he had seen before yeah. like he had yeah. seen in his mind's eyes through the tel- telepathy you know i mean i'm sure he had through his telepathic you know resources he knew the desires that his brother had he knew the things that his brother thought about so i think it was just maybe copying because but there was a lot of blood well, whose blood it was we, we don't that know blood, that was confusing because she because he didn't his hands were all on her face for killing her there really wasn't any other didn't seem, like show any other ways of him killing her so i was wondering where did that blood yeah well i think the director I, I if memory serves he said that the scene wasn't as grotesque as he wanted while they were shooting it so he thought oh i'll just throw some mm. blood in there so he threw all this blood in there and apparently the crew were completely mortified they said you can't do this this is utterly disgusting and then of course that you know every exploitation film needs the scene and the scene is the thing that everyone is going to talk about when they leave it's the thing that people say you have to see this film because you will not believe this scene and that's that scene and no it doesn't it doesn't make sense uh to to uh an 11 year old child i was confused by it (laughs) uh, to say the (laughs) least um you know, but that's an, another thing that horror films, especially in the 80s, introduced you to. It wasn't just death and violence. It was also sex, but not just sex, yeah. sexual deviancy, criminal sexual mm-hmm. behavior, sexual perversity. So you were kind of having all of these really uh, intense things thrown at you. And, you know, watching Basket Case now, you you can, you know, you 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 know what's happening. But when I saw it, I didn't. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, it's like when I watched Evil Dead when I was six years old. Six, seven, maybe seven. Might have been seven. Uh, and you get to the tree scene and you just, you don't oh, understand, yeah. but you know something, you know something sexual is going on. You know it's, it's you, you kind of feel it out, but you don't really yeah. know like what the mechanics are of it. But re-watching Basket Case... I realized, oh, if I was 11 and I saw this film, this must be the first time I ever saw a man's penis. Oh, yeah. Oh. I was surprised about that, too. Because I had not seen a man's penis by the time I was 11. (laughs) And I saw this when I was 11. So that must have been the first time. And I know in American Wealth in London, you see a flash of penis. But this was full frontal Penis. Oh, it's full on. It's yep. going on for a little bit. So I just thought that was worth mentioning, you know? <laughs> yeah. I Hey, I am always about celebrating the male peen in, in movies, and I, I think it needs to happen more often. And I was really happy to see that uh, Hen and Lauder kind of gave us that right. with this. In a very gratuitous moment. Like, it didn't need to happen. No, and I'm, I'm definitely an equal opportunist when it comes to nudity in films. We've seen a huge amount of female <laughs> nudity. I think we, we need to see male nudity. And I think a lot of male yes. filmmakers shy away from it and they'll make excuses like, well, you know, men aren't as attractive. You know, you, people don't Bullshit. want to see. I'm like, I want to see <laughs> men naked. Yeah. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and even when it is played, like in in movies, it's 
for comedic effect, like I'm thinking about with Borat, right. like the first Borat, mm-hmm. where there's the whole like nude wrestling scene. Like all of this is done for like a joke as opposed to when uh, a woman is on screen and she's naked. It's it's sexualized. And I need more sexualization of men. Well, and I also you. feel like being naked naked in that in a non-comedic way is very vulnerable. And there is an mm-hmm. issue with vulnerability of male characters in a lot of films. I mean, and I think what hopefully one day we'll get over that but it's like men don't want to seem vulnerable and like when and when they're naked in any kind of movie where they're not like in a sex scene it's a vulnerable position and i don't think a lot of people know how to handle absolutely it's so true and like i said i'm i'm a big advocate for for equal opportunity nudism in films and i also (laughs) think that um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that the depictions of, of sexuality in horror films in the 80s or the 70s were particularly healthy, but I do feel <laughs> that sex has kind of become decontextualized because we don't see as much of it in films anymore, you know, and the rise of internet porn has kind of decontextualized it to an extent where the, the, the role that sex plays in establishing dynamics in a relationship has kind of been lost and i think it's it's good to see sex in films because it informs character it informs story and and you know it's a huge part of kind of the the dynamic of being a human being and the power dynamic of being mm-hmm. a human being so uh i i actually lament that that you know that there's a nervousness around sex now and one thing i was really pleased to see actually one film that did have an enormous impact on me this year. This is my favorite film of the year is Possessor. Oh my God. Oh it's, yes. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, so it's, it's so good. good. And also has, has male nudity in it. Yeah. Sure direct male nudity. And it's all about the invasion of a man's body by a woman. <laughs> so yeah. the yep. sexual metaphor is very explicit. And uh, I just, I thought it was really brave. It was, it, I haven't seen a film that brave in a very long time. Yeah, it's it's a it's a phenomenal film, and I I love in particular that that scene with the the cross of like the femininity on top, and then the the masculinity on the bottom, mm-hmm. just sort of playing with like gender and in this very intimate moment. It's so yeah, yeah, it's such a good film. Okay, so Terry, how many creepy Belial breaths out of five <laughs> do you give Basket Case? I really I really dig this movie. Um, I I dig it even more after this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I love. I mean, we didn't, I guess we didn't really talk too much about, about the name of Belial, but like I was, I was right before recording, uh, I looked it up and it is a Hebrew word used to characterize the wicked or the worthless. It makes me so sad because as much as like Belial turns into this very evil, like idea of like codependency and like the sort of like nature between him and his brother is, is, is very toxic towards the end. I, I always think back to the the flashback scene where where the father is telling the doctors it's too late to change the other one just cut Dwayne from it and then they throw him in the trash and it's such like a it's such a powerful moment in a movie that is that is I mean it's it's, it's exploitive let's let's be honest yeah. but so I I really I think that this movie sets out to do what it needs to do and what it wants to do and I I admire the kind of gung ho of filmmakers in the 80s like Hennen Lauder and like, you know, Larry Cohen. So I, I honestly, I think for what it is, this is a, a four 
um, creepy Belial brass out of five for me. What about you, Mary Beth? So initially, I gave this movie a three on Letterboxd, but after this conversation mm-hmm. and really thinking about it, I'm going to give this four creepy Belial breaths. I think it, like you said, Terry, it knows what it's doing. Like, it doesn't, none of it's really a mistake. All of it's just like throwing it all to caution to the wind and saying, fuck it. Like, let's make something really weird. And they did. And it was great. And it was kind of funny. And it was kind of terrifying. And it was kind of disgusting. And it all just comes together in a way that maybe shouldn't work, but really works to make something just like genuinely Mm -hmm. 80s horror. (laughs) And still is scary today. um, Especially with the Blau murder scenes. So that is my rating. Kathy, you have the final word. How many creepy blow breaths out of five do you give Basket Case? I give it ten out of five. All right. Yeah. Yes. I I should just mention my husband the other day, he was looking around our apartment and uh, he said, huh, we've got we've got an awful lot of belials in our apartment and i said well what what counts as a lot of belials in an apartment and the answer is four so four belials in an apartment is a lot of belials apparently yeah i remember seeing like uh, i think on your on the instagram you actually shared one of your belial uh oh there's a belial of, of tiki like, mug a, oh a my goodness mug? i think it was a tiki oh, mug my yes God. it's it's a work of art that's amazing uh it's quite stunning so yeah, I you know I I like him, <laughs> like I like I like this guy. I like that he's in touch with his anger. Uh, he should probably get some help for it, but um, I I dig what he's about, and uh, you know he's a uh, he's he's an okay guy. You know he had a he had a hard run. When you start life in the trash, uh, there's not there's Aww. you know it's you you don't have the right skills to navigate the world and. Anyway, I should probably <laughs> stop doing making his excuses for Bilal's behavior. <laughs> have you seen the sequels? I have. Are they any good? Uh, they're fun. They're they're yeah. very different tonally. They're very comedic. They're, so they're very different to the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're definitely worth checking out. And Kevin Van Hintenrick, his, uh, his performance just gets better and better. Like if he was... But kind of finding Dwayne in the first film, he he's got Dwayne down pat in the second and third films. So it's a it's a lot of fun to watch. But yeah, it kind of becomes a little muppety. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Well, you're kind of going into that that era of the like. Th- I mean, this one came out in '82, and then you're sort of moving into the more silliness of like. I feel this film actually has more in touch with like some '70s films that that you would see of that time, as it's starting to like crest into the '80s, and then. By the end of the eighties, I mean, you just, you have silliness, zombie Jason and everything is just like really ridiculous. So that makes sense that (laughs) it kind of gets sillier as it goes on. Yeah. But there's also, I believe, if a memory serves, there is a cameo in brain damage, in Hen and Lotta's brain damage, where Dwayne appears in with his basket. And that's quite fun. That's awesome. That is so cool. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us to talk about Basket Case. Where can the listeners find you and what do you have coming up you'd like to share? I can be found on Instagram and Facebook and I can't really share anything else. Um, so Jacob, <laughs> Jacob's Wife will be coming out early next year. Um, I did have uh, – I have a few projects in development that I can't really talk about now. One was announced, which is a um, kind of elevated postmodern uh, – slasher movie called slash man 
which is fun. Uh, So I'm working on that at the moment. But, uh, you know, kind of COVID has slowed production down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fingers crossed. I have a few things that we're hoping will go next year. So, uh, you know, and and one of those things is is kind of a little – uh, you know, has has a touch of carry to it. So uh, fingers crossed that that uh that gets going. Hell yeah, that'd be so yeah. cool. Um, okay, so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Basket Case? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail dot com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at mb McAndrews. and I'm at Gailey Treadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast at Scarred Podcast, and don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Arnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you to everyone for listening. Stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.